1: Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Basketball Hall of Fame. As a kid, he carved I Love Basketball into his headboard and fell asleep each night touching that carving. He'd go on to be a three-time All-Big Ten and an All-American at Michigan. And then he'd become a part of the Rockets organization for an amazing 33 years, first as a five-time All-NBA player, then a scout and assistant, and then as a two-time world champion coach. He would also win gold in the 2000 Sydney Olympics as the head coach of the U.S. basketball team. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Rudy Tomjanovich. Rudy, welcome. Good to be
2: with you, Rich.
1: Excellent. Well, Rudy, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. And um, as as we know, you know, I like to spend a little bit of time talking about you know an athlete's background and you know kind of where they're from. You're you're born and raised in Hamtramck, Michigan, which is which is basically Detroit. I'd love to hear a little bit about you know kind of your growing up. Obviously, you know you're a basketball star at Hamtramck High School, and just talk a little bit about how you chose Michigan. You know what other schools you were considering. So tell me about Hamtramck.
2: Yeah, Hamtramck is a city that is surrounded by the city of Detroit. Uh, it's right in the heart, uh, you know, in the middle of that city. And, uh, I loved growing up there. You know, it was a racially, uh, integrated, uh, city, uh, race relations in that town were very good. And, uh, you know, it was a Polish town. In fact, for many, many years, I have had to listen to Polish uh, jokes because uh, <laughs> people think I'm Polish, but I am Croatian, which is a, you know, was, uh, comes from Yugoslavia. And uh, yeah, so uh, I feel so blessed that that little city had such a good recreation department. And uh, that in 1959, a team from, uh, from Hamtramck won the Little League World Championships in Williamsport. I was 10. I did not play on that team, but I played against those guys. And my cousin was the second baseman. And really one of the, one of the greatest influences on me, my cousin, that here at the age of 12, he was a world champion, and uh, he never felt, uh, made me feel less than. He, he talked about his experiences with excitement that, uh, yeah, I got to tell my cousin, you know, what that was all about. And uh, that really touched me, and that's the kind of guy I wanted to be, you know, where he was my hero, and here was this just great guy, uh, and his dad had a big influence on, on the Uncle Joe. Uh, he would come over every Sunday and take us for a ride out of Pam Tramick and uh, to see some other things like some of the nicer suburbs of uh, Detroit, just to uh, let our world not be that small that there are some different things.
1: And, and Hamtramck High School is, is where you went. And one of your teammates might have been a couple of years older than you, John Brisker. Did, yeah. you, did you overlap with him?
2: Oh, yeah. He, okay. uh, you know, John was a very flamboyant guy, big personality, and uh, definitely the leader on that team. And uh, he took me under his wing. And he says, I, didn't, I lived uh, one block away from the projects. Most of my teammates lived in the projects. So if something was uh, going down or if the guys were going to go play somewhere, John made sure, well, we're going to get Rudy. Rudy's a part of our team. And that was just fantastic. It, it made me feel, uh, you know, because I didn't have the kind of personality to do that. That kind of stuff so anyway let me tell you the thing about the so my uncle Joe, he uh he bought me my baseball glove and my spikes oh, wow. so uh i felt obligated to him and, and he coached me you know i mean he he threw balls to me and all that and so i ran into in pony league the next year, I ran into a, a sarcastic coach, a guy who enjoyed uh, making jokes about his players and really embarrassing them. And, and this guy loved messing with me for some reason, I don't know. And it, it, it was no fun going to the ballpark. So I go by to see my uncle and I'm telling him I want to quit. And he tells me, you can't do that, man. You signed up. You got to fulfill. What's the problem? And I told him. And uh, he said, stick it out, Rudy. You got to try to stick it out. Well, then I'm I'm at the uh, deal. The, I'm not even in the game now. I don't even play. And after the game and the, the uh, talk with the coach, he makes a – a snide remark about me or something you know that I didn't I didn't screw up this game because I didn't get in the gamer which is just horrible to say to a 13 year old well anyway I didn't know that my uncle was eavesdropping I didn't even know he was there and uh we talked afterwards he says you don't have to do that and uh yeah I'll, I'll get you on another team and I'll let it and then I said so, you know, hold on I don't think I love baseball. I told him. And as he says, he had given me a plan, a plan. Uh, and that was, I was a good student in school. He says, you got to continue hitting those books and getting on the honor roll, but you got to have a sport. If you have a sport, you might be able to get a scholarship because there's no way you're going to school, uh, on what my dad, my dad was in and out of work. And, stuff like that so that was a good plan so then he uh says well what about the plan when i when he says you know i think it's okay to give it up says i'm gonna play basketball and he looked at me and is like and i mean i was so excited the problem was i was on a i was an all-star in baseball in basketball i rode the bench in junior high I didn't even get in during the regular season not one game but I played against the teachers and I remember I got one shot I had the French teacher in isolation and I gave him a couple fakes and shot it complete air ball. so that was my so now I'm going to high school and I'm going to try out for the freshman team so uh one of the guys trying out for the team is one of my closest friends and he's in the teacher's home room. So he comes up to me and says, Rudy, I saw the list of the guys who made the team. You're not on the list. I says, well, are you on the list? He says, yeah, I'm on the list. I says, I'm better than you, you know, and <laughs> I, I wasn't that good, but anyways, so I'm in a panic. Like, I want to play with my friends on this team. And so the guy starts practice and I just interrupt him, And, you know, I says, coach, just play one-on-one. And I have to tell you, that is not, that was not my personality. Right. But for some reason I had to dig in there. And he was an ex linebacker from the university of Michigan who was just trying to make some more money by coaching the freshman team not a real important, uh, I guess, job, you know, when you're looking at the whole thing. But for me, this is the beginning of my career. Yeah. So anyway, he, he was a linebacker. So every time the ball bounced, he thought it was like a fumble and he would just dive and just, you know, lunge at the ball. And I finally figured it out. And I would, have it out and then I jump over and drive in and I beat the guy and he gave me, uh, he gave me a uniform and I got to play, but it was maybe the worst, uh, worst freshman team in the history of our school, you know? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, but I was, I was in basketball, you know, so, uh, it could have been over right then.
1: Right. Um, and so, and, and obviously your game develops, uh, over the next couple of years. Um, and the, the, one th- the one thing I wanted to ask, I, I, I mentioned Brisker before we talk about your Michigan years. I have to admit, I, I had not been familiar with his story. He's, he's obviously a very good high school player, teammate of yours, goes to Toledo, averages 20 points a game over six or seven years in the ABA and the NBA, and then goes to Uganda when Idi Amin is the military dictator there and sadly is never heard from again. And I just and I just wonder, I've I've read all kinds of things about the State Department saying that they don't, you know, acknowledge his existence there. Did you ever, you know, kind of have conversation with him before he went away or at at that point had too much time passed?
2: Uh, Yeah, I had some conversations with him at that time, and I had mentioned how. Harmonious, uh, Hamtramck was with race relations and all that. Yeah, and, and John wanted me to go to Toledo, follow him down there, and uh, and then John uh, started becoming more militant. Mm. You know, so he started uh, you know wearing an afro and uh, the the African garb. Oh, That's the cheeky. Cheeky. yeah yeah and uh, and I know he was you know he was troubled and uh, so anyway, then I hear that he he did go on a trip now and he wound up with Idi Amin but and then wound up uh, they did find records, I think that he was uh, he was killed there. Yeah. So, you know, the question is, did Idi Amin's people do it, or was Idi Amin's uh, army overthrown by somebody else because they were always at war? And nobody knows.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's one of those. I mean, there's like a book to be written there, but that's for a, another time. Absolutely. It's I awesome. just. I, I all of a sudden I saw it. I'm like, I have to ask him about this. This is incredible. I've never heard anything about it. Um. So, okay. Well, interesting. So, so you go to, but you, you ultimately choose Michigan makes sense. Yeah. Um,
2: And and the reason for that was uh, the Cassie Russell era. Sure. You know, uh, and I started watching uh, basketball on TV. I had completely fallen in love with basketball and uh, my, my poor mother, we had no money, but she would go, we didn't have a car. We didn't have a telephone. She would go on the main street where they had some used bookstores and get me these basketball magazines. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I just give her so much credit cause I know she couldn't, it didn't cost a whole bunch. They were secondhand, but God, they kept that fire in me going, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, so you, you go to Michigan, obviously freshmen can't play at that in that era. Your sophomore year, I think it's your very first game. You guys are playing Kentucky who you know, in that era, well pretty much every era, but certainly in that era are you know basically in the final four, seemingly every year. You're going up against a guy like Dan Issel. This is the first game you play. And shortly thereafter you guys go down to Houston and you play against Elvin Hayes, who's like the Player of the year that year um, and Don Chaney. Uh, you know, you're you're kind of being put in the deep end really fast as as a as a sophomore. Tell me a little bit about the transition, you know, into playing at Michigan. You guys have a losing record that year, but you know, obviously, you score like 19 or 20 points a game and have 13 rebounds. You're you're obviously stepping up.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, I was just a babe, just a uh, very innocent. Didn't didn't really know the fine points of fundamental basketball but i did no effort and i did know uh you know i was very lucky that the guys in my neighborhood in my little alley we had alleys back there and and we had put a a uh rim up on every telephone pole in that alley till the neighbors said get that damn thing out of here right. and uh but we would play a game called tip in where, and we created this ourselves where all the shots would have to, to score, you have to tip it in,
1: Okay.
2: you know, and I became a really good rebounder and had great timing because of that, you (laughs) know, but that was, uh, just something that, that came about because, uh, you know, somebody came up with the idea. I don't think it was me. Uh, I was so lucky that in my little city, at a junior high school playground, it became the center of basketball in that area. So mm-hmm. all the great players would wind up coming to Hamtramck to play on that court. And the reason was we had L-shaped uh rim so it wasn't a straight pole where you could get killed driving in there there was no set rule about who could play where but the good players played on that basket and then uh the younger guys or the you know guys that weren't so good played on the other one and i remember uh having them say hey we need a player and say you come on up here and playing on the on the big thing, when the night was over, when the game was over, I just sat there and it was like, you played in Boston garden. You this, (laughs) it was just a big deal. Yeah. uh, Just great memories about that kind of stuff. Uh, But then Michigan, what was, what was so good for me personally was that, we played great teams. You mentioned some of those teams and I had great exposure to, to all these scouts. And, uh, and you know, that really helped me get, get a, getting drafted so high.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. And speaking, speaking of that trap. Well, so yeah. So, so Michigan, you're, you're all big 10, all three years you can play. You're, you're all American, your senior year, you're setting all kinds of rebounding and scoring records at Michigan um uh, you're in what could be you could make the arguments the best draft of all time uh and a lot of people will talk about nineteen eighty four your nineteen seventy draft is certainly in the conversation Bob Lanier, you uh Pistol maravich Dave Cowens, later in the draft Calvin Murphy, who would become your teammate yep. mate, et cetera i mean one one of the most incredible drafts you know in terms of like numbers of Hall of famers and all that stuff um you go second in that draft. Um, and you, at the time, even though you've been associated with the Rockets for 33 years, the first year you played for them, they're in San Diego.
2: San Diego.
1: Um, and I th- you, you had a great quote, something like, I'd never really been to Southern Michigan. I'd certainly never been to Southern California.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I-, I had to, I had a little globe at home. The night before the draft, Pete Newell, great basketball man, was the general manager. And he called and he said, uh, "We finally got a phone." And I told, uh, you know, I told my parents, "These colleges and these people might have to call us." And yeah, it's a scare. It scared the hell out of them. The phone Anyway, I had to look on the map. It's oh my god, I'm almost in Mexico, and uh, boy, was that a unbelievable city to go to? It's so the weather's so good and. It was just beautiful, but not uh, a, a good time for me as a basketball player. You know, I didn't get to play a lot. Right. Uh, and I was very discouraged. Uh, and, and later I found out that I was being used as a chip as the coach was uh, battling with the management. to He wanted to trade Alvin Hayes and uh they wouldn't do it so he sort of got back at them by not playing me who they picked you know right yeah i didn't know that at the time uh so i was really discouraged and uh you know uh, san diego was such a small town type mentality there we actually had a basketball banquet at the end of the year, which most pro teams don't have something like that. Uh, and uh, so at that, that banquet, they presented me with a f- fake mustache in a little uh, plastic case. And I guess it was a joke because I did uh, grow a mustache that year.
1: Okay,
2: And whoever made the decision thought it was funny. And to me, it was so humiliating that that's all I had for my first year that I came out of that thing and kicked that thing for about a mile, cussing and saying, this is never going to happen again. I'm not going to be embarrassed like this. And, you know, I went to work, you know, just hitting the gyms, right after that and says, I got to turn this thing around.
1: Yeah. And the the coach that year who the the issue was with was Alex Hannum, who he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's one of the few coaches in NBA history. He's won championships with two teams, the Hawks and the 76ers. And oh, by the way, an ABA team. Um, So he had had success, but obviously there was this, you know, kind of friction with management. So he's gone after that. And then all of a sudden they bring in Tex Winter, who would later, you know, would like a decade or two later, would become known for, you know, kind of being one of the creators of the triangle offense. Um, Tell me, tell me about having Tex. I mean, would he, not to jump ahead too much, but would he be an influence on your coaching style, you know, decades later?
2: He was a big influence, not only in my coaching style, but my playing style. Okay. He was just, like I mentioned, I was pretty naive as a player, at that time, I just played hard and I, I could shoot and I could jump, but I didn't know how to really play the, the game and, and floor spacing. And less, less, uh, techs had terminology for every movement on the floor. Every pivot had a name for it, every uh, area, you know, that's exactly what I needed at that time to understand more and uh before that I was just a madman I would just go to the ball wherever that son of a gun was I'm going to it you know so I, I you know it was kind of embarrassing anytime there was a picture of me without the ball you know I'd see a photo I'm always asking for the ball so there might be a photo of Calvin Murphy driving. I'm in the background. Hey, man, I'm open, you know. <laughs> but uh, but Tex taught me how to go away from the ball and let the ball move back to you. And the shots were so, the spacing made them, you know, so wide open. So, right. you know, I uh, owe a lot of it to him for uh, just teaching me the fundamentals.
1: Yeah. And 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 like you said, you, you go from, you know, pretty disappointing rookie year. All of a sudden, second year under Tex, you're averaging 15 and 12. The next year he gets let go halfway through the season, but the next year you're 19 and 12. Like all of a sudden your production starts to explode. Um, and then they bring in Johnny Egan. And you guys had Elvin Hayes on your team for the first couple of years, but he and Tex weren't really getting along. So they trade him, right? And they bring in Jack Marin. Yeah. Was Was that kind of perplexing for guys on the team? Like, why are we getting rid of this guy? He seems pretty good.
2: Yeah, it was. uh, You know, we were young. We didn't understand all that stuff. But to see our number one attraction, our main guy, go. And Jack Marin was a very good player, but he wasn't an impact player like Alvin Hayes. Right. And I, I, that was a plus for me because I learned things from jack and uh i took you know jackson would say you can't react so much to one game or whatever He says break it up into groups of you know if you if you have uh you know three out of five games where you you're not doing well okay maybe that's concerned but don't if you're not up to your average or whatever don't you know, feel you're a failure and all that, but that's how I used to be. And I would not, I would not go out after games and, you know, I would take things hard and all that. He tried to get me to look at it in a more general way and not be so up and down.
1: Okay. Yeah. That's It's good to have that veteran presence. And then Mm -hmm. I mentioned you, you and Calvin Murphy come in together in the draft And he becomes, you know, a roommate on the road and obviously a teammate and a best friend. And, you know, for for the most listeners are going to know, obviously, who Calvin Murphy is. But for those who don't, this is a guy who goes to, you know, a tiny school in upstate New York, Niagara. He's what is he? Is he five,
2: nine? Yeah, he's in there somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Not a big guy. Um, And yet, you know, becomes a Hall of Fame basketball player. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with you and Calvin.
2: Well, yeah, uh, yeah, big, re, you know, big part of my life. At that time, I roomed with him for nine years, wow. and, uh, he's one of the few players. There were there were three guys that I would travel, uh, you know, find a way to get to a game, and that was Austin Carr, uh, Spencer Haywood when he was in high school to go see him play. And then Calvin Murphy. We drove down from Ann Arbor. They were playing at uh Detroit. And uh his his warm-up was like a shooting exhibition. Mm-hmm. And uh he's moving around, he's shooting at game pace and all that, and the cameras are just clicking and clicking. I'm like, man, you know, and, and this is what got me. His nicknames was million moves murphy <laughs> hey well you know not a thousand not a hundred so i was completely uh in awe of him as a player he was just amazed just the way he carried himself on the court i could tell he was something special you know sure and then we wind up on the same team which i thought god this is great and uh you know he was a guy that was always on guard. Uh, He cherished being on a team and having his position and you were going to have to, you're going to have to fight his ass to get it away from him. So I would say he was probably the best practice player I had ever seen. Mm. Now I'm not saying he was just a practice player. He had great practices and then played good, at games too, <laughs> you know. Instead of some guys that are great practice players and can't play in the game, sure. but he was always defending his position on the team. Right? Yeah.
1: What was it? I'm, I'm trying to remember now. I remember seeing like you know back you know in the 70s watching something like he was like a like a baton twirler. Baton like he
2: could. <laughs> it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. I don't know if you ever remember a show that used to be on. This is before all these uh, talent shows. It was called Ted Max uh, Talent Show or something. Okay. Calvin, when he was a little whippersnapper, was, was on that show, <laughs> twirling batons with his aunt, who was a majorette. Okay. <laughs> he taught, and he wound up being a world class twirler. And used to do times for the for the Buffalo uh, Bills and the football. Wow, you know. But here he is in a tough neighborhood, you know, uh, marching and, and people are catcall and you sissy. What are you doing? You know. Yeah. And, you know that's one of the ironies of that guy. He's one of the toughest guys, but he does this very delicate sort of. Uh, you know, he has that talent to do that.
1: Yeah, it, it, it was amazing to watch. Oh God. Um, and, and at this point, you're in a run. You're 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 an all-star, you know, kind of four straight years. The team is still struggling. You guys go to the playoffs once, uh, under John Egan. Um, and you know, it's it's you, it's Calvin, it's uh, Mike Newland is is you know a, a productive guard for you guys. And then they bring in Tom Nasalki as coach. And um, and now you guys, he becomes um you guys, you guys have a nice run in the playoffs. You you beat Washington with with Elvin Hayes and Wes Unseld. You lose to Philadelphia. John Lucas has come in, and Mo- Moses Malone has come in. That team is starting to feel, you know, is pretty good. You've got Calvin Murphy, John Lucas, Moses Malone. Yourself, tell me a little bit about what Nasalki was starting to build there.
2: Yep, yeah. Tom Nasalki is a a guy who. Want you to feel comfortable in your offense. What we did is we dry ran our offense a lot. You know, we didn't scrimmage a whole bunch, but man, we knew what our plays were and all that. And, and uh, we had talent, but the biggest factor was we had this young Moses Malone who was just like a seed that was ready to blossom into this phenomenal player. And, and in that series, that Washington series, which was very, very close,
1: mm-hmm.
2: he actually dominated at times, you know, being a young kid playing against Elvin and playing against Wes Unseld. And, uh, you know, that was the biggest thing, why we were starting to have some success. Right,
1: right. Yeah, it was it was amazing. seeing like the, you know, kind of that roster come together, and then early in the '77 season, uh, you guys are off to kind of a sluggish start. Uh, you're still, you know, putting up pretty big numbers, and there is an incident. Uh, you're playing the Lakers. There's some pushing and shoving. It's it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kevin Kunert from your team. Kareem, uh, uh, sorry, Kermit Washington. You come running over. He turns around and just instinctively punches. Um, you know, I've, I've seen that, you know, he told you later he had no idea who it was. He was punching. He just, you know, that was just an instinctive reaction. It, it, it basically dislocates your skull and you go down and there's actually spinal fluid dripping from your brain into your mouth. They take you off the court, and I I love this part. I mean, in in a horrific situation, I love this part. You're you're saying to your trainers and your team doctors, put a mask on me. You know, the type of thing somebody gets when they break a nose. I want to go back in. And they're kind of saying, uh-uh, you're not going back in. Um, You you ultimately return the next year. You have to sit out the rest of that season. Um, You return next year, and you put up all-star numbers again. You're in the all-star game. And John Feinstein, who is, you know, arguably the best nonfiction sports writer of, of our era, writes a book about it. And, and both you and Kermit participate in it. And I'm curious, did you find that process, uh, you know, kind of talking to John, was that therapeutic for you? Yeah.
2: When uh, John approached me about the book, I, I laughed. And I said, first of all, I said, nobody cares about that it happened. It was a long time ago. He said, "I don't want to talk about it again." And I says, "I'm sure Kermit doesn't want to talk about it either." He right. says, no, "No, Kermit really wants to talk about it," mm. and uh, and he said, "You know, he wants people to know what sort of happened to him." And I still wasn't, uh, I wasn't convinced. And then I had a couple meetings with John, and we really connected. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I says, okay, I'll do it. And it was a very good process of going through that. Uh,
1: you know, it was kind of therapeutic or brought some closure. That's cool.
2: So I, I'm, I'm still coaching at that time. Right. And, uh, so I'm at home and I'm working on a team, the phone rings and it's Kermit. And, Mm -hmm. uh, he thanks me for doing the book. So I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was working. You know, he was a workout guy, and he was working with this uh, young player. We needed somebody to come in. we were drafting Yao Ming, but he wasn't going to be released till training camp was over. So we needed a guy who would work hard and not have a crazy idea that he was going to be You know the center on that team, but and uh, Kermit brought in a guy that was just perfect, and he did a great job for us. So that was pretty cool that something positive like that came out of it.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's that's awesome. That's interesting. I'd not heard that story. That's that's very cool. Um, And so then, so you recover, and the next year you you know once again are putting up all star numbers. I think you know kind of a twenty and eight or something like that. You're back in the all star game had to have been
2: gratifying. Um, well, it, let me tell you something about that. Yeah. I didn't want to go that year. Uh, I was voted in that year and I thought it was a sympathy vote. And uh, I felt I might be taking somebody else's spot, hmm. you know, but, uh, you know, the uh, some of the media guys, told me come on man you deserve this you know and uh you know i just thought it was a reaction to what had happened to me and uh anyway it was one of my best all stock games and uh and it was back in in detroit
1: oh that's cool it's not like your numbers dropped off i mean your numbers were right where they had been and that's that's an interesting team. Rick Barry is now on the team. He obviously had won a title with Golden State, and and you know he comes in. So it's Moses Malone and Rick Barry. Obviously you and and Calvin Murphy. Um, you guys are in the playoffs again. You you lose to Atlanta, um, and then and then has gone, and Dell Harris comes in, and then and with Dell Harris, so now it's now it's kind of the 80-81 season, and the team is sub five hundred you kind of back into the playoffs, but then you guys go on a run. You knock off the Lakers, you knock off, uh, what was it? Excuse me, San Antonio. And then the Kansas city Kings, both of you, Kansas city and you guys are in the Western final, both with losing records, which is amazing. Um, Yeah. And then you guys play a tough series with the Celtics that you lose. Um, now as the year has gone on, your minutes are starting to shrink.
2: Uh, Yeah. I am so competitive, uh, a competitive player and wanted to prove myself and always looked for any kind of negative that I could latch on to, to, you know, push me to the next, uh, to the next level. Okay. And, uh, and then I saw my kids playing in a neighborhood with their friends. And I said, you know, I have no doubt that I'll be traded and I'll do well because I'll work and I'll do that. Is it fair to take them out of this environment? Uh, but it, so I had a couple of years left on my contract, and I went in and said, "Well, uh, I'll give you one year back if you give me the other one." You know, so I quit right then and I get a year contract, but they save the year. Okay. And so that's how that sort of happened. Okay. Uh, and I just did it because of the kids, you know, I just, uh, and then I was sort of in limbo for a couple months, not knowing what the heck was going to happen, you know, uh, with what, what I was going to do exactly.
1: And, and then was it the team approached you and said, Hey, why don't you consider scouting? Was it, or did you go to them with that?
2: Oh, they came to me, okay, in fact, I think I came when I did come to them, they said, uh, "Why don't you go over to U of h and and do a you know a graduate assistant or whatever you call it right? you know as a and uh I was getting ready to do that. Then they said, "You know what we could use it here you know we they only had one assistant coach, sure, uh so that's how I started. I would go out and uh, do the strategy, you know, spy on the other teams, get all their calls and diagram their plays, which is a great, uh, a great job for a young coach. Yeah. Now I I get to see all these other teams, their whole arsenal. You know, I get to study those things and uh, I, I really love that part you know, to be that spy. And, you know, I'd actually call guys I didn't even know uh, who are scouts to, you know, say, Hey, you got to call for that play where they do the backdoor thing and, uh, and uh, you always wanted to be perfect.
1: Right. Interesting. That is actually, that's an interesting point. So you spend two years as a scout, obviously over the course of those two years, you probably see every team in the league multiple times, perfectly positioning yourself to come in and be a coach then.
2: You have the information. That's the data. That's what's out there, you know. And, you know, I learned as a coach, you know, and you see this, you're you're upset that something's hurting you that somebody else is doing. The other team is hurting you with something. Right. Well, why in the hell aren't we doing that? Right. Why aren't we using that formation? And we see what the problems are here. And uh, you know, so that was a learning experience for me as a coach.
1: And so then Bill Fitch comes in and Fitch is he's won a title with Boston. He's uh Larry Bird's first, he's you know, had some success with Cleveland, you know, take him from worst team in the NBA to Eastern Finals. Um always regarded as kind of a tough guy, but he brings you in as an assistant coach. And that's when you guys are getting Ralph Sampson and Rodney McRae and then Hakeem Olajuwon in, you know, two consecutive drafts. Tell me what it was like working for Bill Fitch and also seeing those guys. I mean, you know, the Twin Towers must've been amazing watching that team come together.
2: Yeah. uh, Well, Bill Fitch was known as a disciplinarian. And, uh, you know, he'd be a guy that could write a uh, a ship that's all over the place and straighten it out. And that's what he did. But he had some great, we had some great uh, players that he could work with. Sure. And, uh, you know, decided to go with a Twin Tower lineup, which wasn't done a whole bunch. Uh, San Francisco had done it, I think with Nate Thurman and Will Chamberlain okay, at right. one time. And I didn't get a, to see a whole lot of tape. I'd love to go and study that, you know, how they worked that out. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, he did a really good job and uh, got us into the playoffs.
1: And then in 86, you guys were in the finals again. Another kind of tough series with Boston. And obviously that's you know Kevin McHale, Robert Parish, Bird, uh, you know Cornbread Maxwell, like that squad. Um, and it's another four-two series loss to to Boston. Um, and then and then unfortunately a couple guys get hit with pretty with like two and a half year suspension drug suspensions, and the wheels kind of come off a little bit. And within a year or two, Don Chaney's comes, comes in. You, you stay on the, t- um, I'm sorry, you stay on as an assistant yep. with him. What was that like? You know, kind of the transition from a Bill, a Bill Fitch disciplinarian type coach to Don Chaney.
2: Yeah. Uh, Don Chaney, uh, a big contrast, a uh, really laid back, uh soft-spoken guy, defense oriented, one of the best defensive uh players to ever play in the NBA. And, uh, you know, we had sort of a middle-of-the-road team mm-hmm. and uh, and got to make the playoffs, you know, a couple more times. I can't remember exactly how many of those uh, we went to the playoffs on.
1: Yeah, most years. I mean, most years, ah. well, I mean, having just looked at the numbers, it was kind of most years got in and then most years lost in the first round. Yeah, it seems. yeah. And then, and then in there was the trade where Samson was traded uh, to Golden State, basically for Joe Barry Carroll and Sleepy Floyd.
2: Yeah, oh. he, at that time his knees were bad. Okay. And he could not make quick uh, change of directions.
1: Gotcha. Okay.
2: So when he was running the court to get back down on defense, he he didn't just plant. And go back. He sort of rounded it out, and it was it was a problem uh, defensively.
1: Gotcha. Um, and so then, and so then, after I think it was the '92 season. Uh, no, not I'm sorry, not after the '92 season. During the '92 season, yeah, you guys were kind of a 500 team, and they they let Cheney go, and they they make you the head coach. Uh, now obviously, you've been an assistant for like you know six or seven years, whatever it's been. So. It, you know, it's got to be something that you'd like to do to become a head coach. But did it catch you off guard when when it actually happened?
2: Oh, big time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we had a other guy, Carol Dawson,
0: mm-hmm.
2: who was an assistant coach, has wanted to be a coach all of his life. You know, sure. And he is such a practical guy. Uh, I really liked his approach. Uh, so we go in there and uh, we were going to fight for Don, you know, because he had done a great job. He had been the uh, coach of the year the, the year before, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was, which <laughs> it's always, you know, just like so hard
2: to kind That's of. That's a crazy one. I still don't get that. Yeah. Uh, h- how often that happens. A guy gets coach of the year, the next year he's gone.
1: Yeah. And so so you take over and in your first full season, you guys go 55 and 27 and you've got, you know, the, the core is Elijah Juan, uh, Otis Thorpe, Robert Ori, uh, Kenny, the jet Smith, Vernon Maxwell, but you guys also have a great bench. You've got Mario Ely coming off the bench. You've got Carl Herrera. You've got Sam Cassell and Scott Brooks. You You go like nine deep. And that next year, the 94 season, you guys win the title. You, you knock off Portland and Phoenix, and then Utah, and then uh, the Knicks in seven. Uh, tell, tell me about that season as it's, as, as it's playing out, because, you know, you're putting up a great record. You know, did you kind of have a sense, like, this could be a team that could go all the way?
2: Yeah, well, it started before that. It started the year before. Okay, right. And, uh, and we started out where we are just not getting it done. And I'm a young coach and I've got to go out. And some of the efforts were embarrassing and you got to get up there. And I'm not a confrontational type guy, sure. but you got to do your job. You got to get, you know, those corrections made and all that. And then uh, finally it starts to click that we've got to be a better defensive team. Mm. And After it clicks, we go forty-one and eleven. The rest of that year, wow! After we had some uh, bad times, then we start out fifteen and zero the next year. Right. That's where the team found its identity. Right. And you know, uh, so we we have to go to set that record. It's not an important record. You don't get anything for it. It does say something about being prepared early in the season. Right. And I was pr- very proud of that, you know.
1: Yeah. Tell me that feeling in in 94 when you guys win it. Just, you know, what that feeling is in the locker room afterwards.
2: Yeah, uh It is very hard to put it in a sentence that really will explain how wonderful it is. uh, It's your dreams coming true. It's that feeling of satisfaction that, you know that that year, nobody was better. Right. And uh, you face them all, and uh, you're the last man standing. Right. And you know, I was numb for a while after the championships, you know, you just, you're sort of riding along on this wave and it didn't hit me until I took a family trip and we were in South Carolina and they, a uh, commercial came on for the, for the tape of the, the, the uh, championship team. They have sure. it every year.
1: Yeah.
2: And all the, the uh, videos they used were from different angles. You know, it wasn't what you saw on TV. And I'm watching I'm saying, oh my God, that's us. Yeah. That's us, we're the world champions, you know? And then to do it a second time from, from where we were is just really too much to ask. Uh, yeah, and- I don't know if it will ever happen again.
1: Well, and that second team, I mean, it really is fascinating looking at it. So the, you know, the first team is 58 and 24. You guys have a, you know, it's a great season from start to finish. The 94-95 team, you guys finish in sixth place in the West. And so you're on the road constantly. You don't have home field advantage at any point in the playoffs. Um, and you had to make some really tough decisions that year. The first is a player who I think you probably loved Otis Thorpe.
2: Absolutely
1: you 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 trade him for Clyde Drexler because you just kind of feel like we just need this other thing. And so you make a trade that had to have been hard to do. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. Well, just my general philosophy, looking at that situation, I would say you got to give those guys a chance to defend their championship. Sure. And, uh, but... Things were getting so bad i re- I remember a loss in uh in against the clippers that yeah. was so bad and humiliating and then we found out that we could get Clyde and C- Clyde because he's such a great player, but also <laughs> we knew we had to get another offensive player right. because we were we were uh using Akeem way too much. We had had that uh, very physical series against New York the year before where they tag-teamed down him. They had so many big bodies that we had to – you know, Akeem will be able to do, – he'll do it, but eventually we're going to wear him out. So sure. we had to have more offense. And and when you got offensive players – they usually don't mesh real good with the other guy who's shooting, but these guys are great friends and they have a background. He's probably the only guy we could have made a trade for. Sure. And and they made it work. Right. You know, Uh, now the crazy thing is that a lot of people don't understand. I love Otis. I still love Otis. And uh, it wasn't about him. It was, changing the chemistry and he's the only asset that we had that they, they wanted, you know, and then Clyde came in and just was fantastic.
1: Yeah. And, and, and you guys just go on that uh, on, you know, on just a hell of a run in the playoffs after having, like I said, you know, basically having to be the road team in every series and another hard decision you had to make, or you, you know, well, yeah, hard decision you had to make was, um, Vernon Maxwell, Mad Max, is on your team. He's obviously, just like Otis, a key part of that team the first year. And he's probably not thrilled that a guy like Clyde Drexler is coming in and taking some shots away from him. And after the first game of the playoffs, he basically goes home and and does not play the rest of the playoffs as you guys go on to a championship. And I, I'd love to you know kind of hear about that and also point out that in your Hall of Fame acceptance speech – you go out of your way to thank both Otis, obviously, and Vernon Maxwell, who were both there in attendance, um, you know, for your induction. So, tell me a little bit about that one.
2: I didn't find out till later what a negative effect uh, Clyde Drexler coming to our team had on our other team, uh, on his teammates. Sure, and it, were, it was all because of feeling threatened. Uh, Clyde covered so much area that we could play him in so many situations that he affected everybody's playing sure. time. and sure. that's why they got to have their PT, you know. Yeah, and, uh, and but you know, Clyde stayed above the whole uh, controversy, uh, and we kept saying the coaching staff is, we're going to be better. We're going to be better, but we had the injuries. Both Akeem and Maxwell had bleeding ulcers from, uh, you know, taking uh, pain medication for te- uh, you know, uh, tendonitis or whatever it was, and sure. they both uh didn't play. So that after we got Clyde, Ori also got hurt too. So the team that won the championship didn't get together until the first game of uh, the playoffs. We didn't have a chance to, you know, work it together and uh, sure. like a miracle. Uh, and all the teams that we faced, you know, like San Antonio, they owned us that year. I mean, they just owned us. And uh, and then uh, Orlando who we uh, swept, they swept us during the season, you know. So it was interesting. We, we did get better as a team, you know.
1: Yeah. And, w- and was that a tough one when Maxwell, you know, is, basically goes home oh, after the first so, game? So
2: I love Max. I, I love that he's fiery. But if that fire isn't directed in the right direction uh, in a positive way, something bad's going to happen. And the and the fans there in Utah loved to agitate him. He was upset about the uh, not playing as much. I was going to have it. He wanted to talk to me about playing more. I wanted to talk to him about playing less. So we weren't clicking real good. And he said he was hurt. So I said the the best thing that he could do is go home and get treatment. And, you know, get him out of harm's way because something bad was going to happen.
1: And then uh, and then you guys, you go on to win uh, the championship. So back-to-back. I was going to say there's a great quote from Popovich, but I'll use that at the end about how tough it is to do back-to-back. For all his titles, no back-to-backs. Um, well, I then, didn't know
2: that. Wow, that's inter- That's very interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he, th- he had a run there where it was like every other year it was like, Oh three, oh yep. five, oh seven, you know, it was one of
2: those things. And and that brings up a very interesting point that I believe in is to be a champion, you have to overcome human nature. Right. After you win like that, it's normal to feel, hey, that's pretty good. And that's our players admitted that that second year, you know, that trade did uh put a fire on us because. Cause we were, we had happy feet, then We weren't the same team. And, you know, Clyde came in and, and helped us become a better team.
1: Yeah. Got you refocused kind of. Um, And then, and then after that, no more returns to the finals, but a couple of like Charles Barkley comes in and at one point you've got Hakeem Clyde, and Barkley in your lineup, you know, for, for a couple of years. Tell me, tell me about that. Having Barkley come in who put up good numbers. I mean, he was 19 and 13 for you.
2: Yep. Uh, Amazing player, amazing person, really a good person. uh, Funny as hell. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, I remember when I got Barkley, I had all these ideas about, We could do this with him, you know, all these different things. And I started showing him. He says, Coach, please. He says, all you got to do is get me that ball in that area on the left side, off the box a little bit, and I'm going to be okay. And sure enough, we had a couple different plays. Unbelievable passer of the basketball. After the championships, we couldn't beat – uh, we couldn't beat Seattle. They had gotten our number. Right. With their uh, different kind of defenses. And uh, they would always uh, get us off balance. We get we had Charles in the fourth quarter. I give him the ball every time. When those double teams come, boom, 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 boom. He's, he's getting layups uh, and three-pointers for everybody on the team. Right. And, man, was that... You know he's a he's a heck of a player, and you know I thought we were going to win the other one when he had a a freak uh, injury and, and knocked him out of the lineup. But right. that was that was a strong team, and another player that was big on that team was Kevin Willis. Mm. Kevin Willis had a, a re, one of, one of his best years as a pro, and uh, I thought we had a chance.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Barkley, I think I saw, at one point I saw you say that he was one of the most unselfish players you've ever coached.
2: Absolutely. We yeah. had a game in uh, Vancouver where they were doubling every time. And uh, we went on a run where we just threw it to him. They started doubling. And he had, I think, six or seven assists before he took his first shot. Wow. Now, now we scored more than those six or seven times because they threw it to the next guy and the other guy got the assist. But that's how much offense he would generate with his unselfishness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and then I, I, I want to jump to. In 2000, so I've interviewed uh, Lenny Wilkins on this show. And, you know, obviously we all know 92 Dream Team, you know, first time we send our professionals. Real pressure was on in 96. Lenny Wilkins takes over and it's like, okay, now you got to do it again. And he, he's the head coach of that team. The real pressure then is on in 2000. You're coming in, you guys have won in 92 and 96. And a couple of like, you know, big superstars, the the Kobe's and the Tim Duncan's, you know, I think that a lot of those Offseason season tournaments are, you know, taking their toll, so you go in with a great lineup, but some of the top players are not participating, and you guys go into Sydney, and you win gold again. Tell me about that experience of coaching that team, and and like a guy like Kobe, were you trying to, come on Kobe, you know, come, come down and play, or did you, you know, kind of recognize that it was going to be tough to get all these guys to commit again?
2: Yeah, well, it was very interesting, that whole Olympic Uh, experience first of all the way it was set up uh, was kind of weird I just had contact with the committee on a on a uh, group call Mm. and the coach does not have a vote Uh, but you do have a chance to make a plea you know and I looked at what they had uh, done. I said, we don't have a small forward on that team. And I would like Vince Carter, mm-hmm. you know, so they do the vote comes back. No Vince Carter. And I'm like shocked, you know, none of those guys are going to be there on this committee. Maybe, maybe some, but they don't have to go in battle the coach is asking for something and you don't give it to him. Yeah. You know, it was, it was weird. So anyway, yeah. I later, after that experience, wrote a letter to Jerry Coangelo about some of those uh, problems, mm-hmm. you know, with that. And he came in and he changed that whole thing. And the coaches are so involved now with all this stuff. and I think it's a, it's a much much better system now under yeah. Jerry Coangelo.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't realize that the coach didn't have as much of a say. Yeah. Because oh. I looked at the roster and I was like, my God, how many guards do they have on this team? I mean, I think you yeah. had eight guards on the team. And you're and you're right, like only one center, Alonzo. And
2: and, uh, and what like, Alonzo did is he did something amazing. He went home from Australia to be with his wife for her pregnancy and then came back. Wow. Can you imagine the jet lag that this guy was going through? And what, I, I don't think it was connected, but shortly after that, we find out that he has the, the bad kidney or whatever it right. was and that he had to give it up.
1: Uh.
2: Uh, but that was amazing. And uh, yeah, truly a a life changing uh, experience, the the Olympics.
1: Yeah, I, I, I watched your Hall of Fame speech, which was which was really cool to see. And and obviously, you got kind of to go through and talk about you know the the various guys who what they meant to you. Your you know all your different players. I guess two two quick observations. One. Looking at your career from from the very beginning, you know, playing in San Diego all the way through uh, to being um, uh, the the head coach of the Rockets. In your years with the Rockets, you had you played either with or or, or had under you, Elvin Hayes, Moses Malone, Hakeem Olajuwon, Ralph Sampson, um, uh,
2: Joe Barry Carroll. Joe Barry
1: Carroll, Yao Ming. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable the big guys who you either played with or worked with or coached or, you know, or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, just kind of fascinating to kind of see that the, um, the, the list of guys, but also you talked about um, the support of other coaches and you mentioned Greg Popovich and Jeff Van Gundy and Doc Rivers and, you know, how much their uh, how much they meant to you uh, as you were going into the Hall of Fame. Tell me a little bit about that, like that, you know, kind of fraternity of coaches.
2: Yeah. uh, It really was an unbelievable. First of all, it was mixed feelings. Uh, I don't know why the Hall of Fame uh, does things the way they do it. They've always done it that way. And, uh, you know, I had two times where I called and the answer was no. Uh, And that's very hard to go through And you just start wondering, before though, before those things, I don't say, oh yeah, that's coming up. I have to do this and all that. I always believe honors, they just come or they don't come. You don't campaign, you don't do anything like that. Uh, But when everybody else would react to it, you know, and I would be, I'd feel embarrassed. I didn't want to talk about that. Like, what's he doing? You know, is he whining about that? Which I wasn't, but these other guys stepped up and said things about that. And it just touched my heart because we're so damn competitive and you want to beat the other guy, but they understand what a tough life it is. You know, so many times I look at an arena and the game's over and uh, say your team lost, you know. Everybody else's life is going to be about the same after they leave. Uh, but the coach has got to go home and find a way to to improve that team and make adjustments for the next time. And yeah. it's a hell of a grind. You know, it's a hell of a grind. And uh, when I look back, I can't even tell you how amazed I am that I got through that because – I. I wasn't one of those guys that could, could just put it somewhere else. You don't take your home, uh your work home. Uh, that's, that's not me. Not that yeah. I would tell the kids we can't defend the pick and roll. So <laughs> go to bed early. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, but it's a, a stressful job. And, uh, and then to reach you know this is an exciting uh, time of year. It's during the playoffs, and you're watching these teams. And there's so many good teams, uh, and you're going to see good players fall by the wayside that have had great years, uh, but only one team's going to be standing at the end. And to have gone through that and be the last team standing is is truly just a amazing feeling and uh, you know when I looked at some of those old tapes the first time we won it they had Akeem he sort of sat on the scores table and just looked at the crowd you know and just took it all in and uh, it is it's uh, I wish I had the vocabulary to to give it justice about what a wonderful warm uh, feeling of accomplishment you get
1: yeah so so a couple last questions as as we wind up who who was the who was one of the tougher guys to score on
2: oh, uh, one of my one of my old teammates ec coleman okay he uh played me every day in practice he's i love the guy just a hard-working uh player went to houston baptist uh, university where we practiced and here the guys on the team so when he got traded to when he got traded to uh, New Orleans he was guarding me and he knew that I was a emotional player that once I got it going that I could go on a string uh, he uh, like on a fast break three on one he discarded me he wasn't going to let me get a basket to get started. He let the other guys go ahead. it. I got him, and uh, he did a hell of a job. I really had to work hard at trying to beat the guy because he was so he's the kind of guy that if you shake his hand, uh, the toughness of his hand with the calluses and all that, some sort of hurts when you do it. And and I love the guy because he's a hard working guy, but I hated playing against him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I get that. At last question: Who who was a coach that you you know kind of admired or emulated? You know, could be one of the guys you played, you know, for, or was an assistant coach too, or somebody you know on the other side of the court.
2: Uh, I love so many of them, and that's that's what I I got from that scouting, you right. know. And uh, but the guy who affected my career the most especially playing, was uh, Tex winner And I had mm-hmm. talked about him just to get some organization into my head about it. And then terminology. Man, I love terminology, where mm-hmm. we had our language that I could talk to my, my player in front of the other team and use our language, and they wouldn't know what we were trying to do.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And that was kind of cool. Uh, but you know, I'm trying to golf now and all that and how you communicate things you want other people to do is very important. And it's, uh, and people don't receive it the same way. People learn in different ways, which I found out later in my career. Uh, And uh, it's amazing that we get anything done when you really know how certain people, I had, I had, two assistant coaches uh, and I had a guy come in and, and perform some uh, neural testing. And I asked, I said, I'm going to call you tonight. They were both. It wasn't a suspicious situation. I just said, I'm going to call you tonight. I need to talk to you guys. One guy had a tremendous day, man. This is what it's all about. The coach needs me. I can't wait till he calls, see what this is all about. The other guy had a tough day. Why didn't he tell me what it's about? Why do I have to wait all day? This, you know, and he had a terrible day. And not understanding that, just that innocent statement, how that can cause a little bit of chaos there, you know?
1: Sure. Interesting point. Wow. Yeah.
2: And we don't know. So that guy uh was helping me find out but he he eventually passed away but it was a great uh, in fact everybody that he tested we still talk about some of the things we learned about ourselves really interesting
1: yeah wow that's fascinating um well, Rudy, I have to say it's it's been fascinating hearing about you know kind of the days in Hamtramck and and obviously at Michigan and and your you know very long run with you know the Rockets in, at every capacity basically, and and then the Olympic team and and just you know kind of hearing about some of the players and coaches of that era. I I thought uh, I, I the two two great quotes stood out um, when I was uh, you know kind of reading up on you a little bit. Um, one was after that second championship, right? The one that was more of a grind you you know you were the road team in you know in in every series uh you came out and said don't ever underestimate the heart of a champion and you know never could truer words have been said about you know a team a coach i thought that kind of encapsulated you know kind of everything and also a quote from greg popovich who obviously he's a competitor of yours, right he coached the spurs all those years um and he was talking about that that second championship team and he said uh speaking of you he really did it the hard way that second championship they're all hard and we all know that but that second championship was particularly difficult because they were playing on the road all the time but rudy's a competitor and he had a team full of competitors he's the head of the snake he was relentless he never let up he believed in his guys the whole time and he was a great leader that year in houston um i thought that was a a pretty cool way to you know kind of encapsulate the the run you guys had
2: yeah and uh you know he's a coach that I really admire and uh, I'm really watching.
1: Well, well, Rudy, thank you so much for coming on to Chasing Hardware. It's, it's been a lot of fun, uh, you know, hanging out and talking to you about all these different stories.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed it too, Rich.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much, man. Take care. All right. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.